Welcome to the latest edition of the Mind Gut Conversation podcast, a place to learn about breakthroughs in the science and practice of health, mind-body interactions, the microbiome, food, and the environment. Today, I have the great pleasure to talk to Emily Berner, a chef educator and integrative health coach. Emily received her master's degree in food studies from New York University and her health coaching certification from Duke Integrative Medicine. She trained at the Natural Gourmet Institute for Health Supportive Culinary Arts and is the chef and coordinator at New York Presbyterian Hudson Valley Hospital's Teaching Kitchen, where she also manages the organic garden. Currently, Emily teaches at the Institute of Culinary Education in Pasadena and leads the Mental Fitness Kitchen and Coaching Program at Dr. Drew Ramsey's Integrative Psychiatry Clinic. Welcome to the show, Emily. Emily, it's a real pleasure to have this opportunity to talk to you today. Uh, it's This is not going to be a conversation about um, about science primarily. It's really something of how this interface of um, eating well and enjoying food um, supported by scientific evidence is actually good for our bodies. So um, really important so, um, and, and a topic of great interest. So let me start out with something, ask you something personal. So you had an Ill illustrious career that took you from being a baker to train at some of the most prestigious U.S. teaching uh, institutions for food studies and culinary arts and becoming um, a chef instructor at the Institute of Culinary Education in Los Angeles. Um, so the question is, how did this career start for you? What, what made you decide to embark on this path um, that ultimately made you to a prominent health coach and chef? Well, thank you so much for, first of all, having me on, on this podcast. And it's I feel so humbled and honored to be here with you and uh, and be able to connect with all of your listeners. So thank you. Um, and it's it's really, it's thanks to my teachers. I think I've had fabulous teachers throughout uh, my journey. Um, I think if I looked a little bit further back, there's there's no sort of definitive starting point. I think that origin story maybe even starts when I was a kid and cutting up fruit salads and all of the oohs and ahs that that garnered when you know presented a beautifully cut orange or something like that and just the impact that cooking food had on my loved ones and community um, was really an internal motivator at a young age. I think um, I was very fortunate to volunteer in 2008 for a program called the Sylvia Center in New York as an assistant to a chef. And I was a teenager and they were teach, they have an incredible mission. They were teaching um, young people about the connection between food and health through cooking classes. Mm -hmm. uh, and one day the chef just didn't show up. So I was this assistant, this teenage <laughs> assistant, and all of a sudden I found myself in a room full of other uh, young kids and teens, and I had to teach the class because there was no no chef instructor that day. So that was the first time um, where I really witnessed the power of commensality, of eating together, cooking together, and the connectedness that comes with that, and the humanity really that that can create. Um, I think there, I mean, there were a few other sort of formative moments 
um, around the same time, I don't know if you remember the documentary Food Inc. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that one? Yeah, and, and that came out around that time. That really lifted the veil on the American food system and kind of blew my mind. So from there, I, I you know, just like everybody that watches a food documentary, it's like, well, now do I eat vegan or do I do this or do I do that? Um, and so I practiced a vegan diet for a little while. And what that did was instead of you know, being more restrictive, which usually is what people think of when they think of a vegan diet, they think of like cutting everything out. It expanded my culinary skills because all of a sudden I had to learn to cook things like tempeh and lentils and things that I wasn't familiar with before. So, um, so that I'd say that documentary really was a catalyst for my sort of expanding my culinary skills. And then, um, and then, you know, I didn't study any of this in college. I studied uh, there's so many people on my path who in college, they studied nutrition and they studied, you know, things having to do with food. I studied poetry. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was nothing to do, nothing to do with food. Uh, although I sort of think that maybe food and poetry are somewhat related and that they're like these little wormholes that lead you into these connected systems and, and always lead you back to nature in some way. But um, I studied poetry and I didn't really want to be a chef, but I applied to culinary school um, thinking that, you know, I've got to eat. I've got to feed the people around me. I might as well find a way to do that that's healthy and delicious. Um, so that that's sort of what brought me into, into culinary school in 2012. And then uh, the coaching piece really came later. That came during the pandemic. I was I was working at New York Presbyterian Hospital and leaving their teaching kitchen there. And I found that many patients would come to cooking classes and still struggled to implement what they've learned. So I became really curious about, you know, what's going on there? Um, how can we better support our, our patients? We can't really just assume that just because we show someone how to make something delicious, they're going to do it. Some will, but we really need to figure out, you know, what are the unique barriers and challenges that people are facing um, that kind of inhibit them from from cooking and, and doing that. So, I mean, just for me to understand this, uh, and, and, and I have to explain, you know, even though my my history of origin goes back to, to my parents' business, which was a confectionery store and, you know, making all the things that now nowadays I would tell people not to consume in excessive amounts. <laughs> like chocolates and sweets and 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 everything, um, <clears throat> but as a gastroenterologist, um, I've never really been. I mean, ironically, never been exposed to to diet and nutrition uh, other than the macronutrients that you get enough protein and. Um, <clears throat> but just to clarify this, so the difference between culinary arts and nutrition or nutritional sciences. Uh, culinary arts is really putting it into practice, is putting the nutrition science into into practice. Is that correct understanding? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where really chefs have so much power. Um, it's it's taking, you know, big nutritional concepts and actual actualizing them, turning them into something that we can eat and enjoy. Um, so we might have certain suggestions for, uh, you know, you go to the doctor and, and he says, you've got a heart health problem and you've got to eat this, this and cut out this, this. A lot of people don't know necessarily how to do that. Maybe bacon's been your breakfast every day um, for your entire life. And then all of a sudden you're being asked to make this 
huge life change and you don't have necessarily the time or the resources to figure that out. So this is where teaching cooking can really be a powerful tool in supporting people on their, on their journey to health. So another question, sort of a technical thing, um, what, what specifically do you teach at the Institute now and, and who are your students? What, what trajectory are your students on? Yeah, um, so the school that I teach at is called the Institute for Culinary Education. Um, I graduated from the Natural Gourmet Institute and um, they were they closed their doors a few years ago, but their whole curriculum was purchased by the Institute for Culinary Education. So I'm now teaching at the culinary school that I went to 10 years ago, just in a different different school. But what we really teach is um, in in the program that we're doing, which is the plant based program, because they're are several different tracks that you can take in culinary school. Um, the plant-based program, which is soon actually gonna have a, a virtual option. So if you know chefs can't attend in person in California or in New York, they can attend from their, their home kitchen. So we're really developing that now, it's really exciting. Um, but our topics cover everything from you know, quite classical canonical culinary techniques, but also food philosophies like macrobiotics and Ayurveda. And we go deep into nutrition education and really um, encourage our chefs to understand chronic diseases and their roots. Um, we also teach them about our food systems. We teach them about endocrine health, heart health, um, diabetes. We really so many different uh, different aspects of, of health and wellness that traditional culinary schools don't go into. So it's a fantastic program. I'm, I'm super grateful to all of my teachers that have path, you know, paved this path for me. This, this would not have existed without all of their work. So yeah, it sounds, I mean, it sounds wonderful. So are most of the students on a trajectory to become chefs? Is, is that the, the most likely outcome? Yeah, so many of them, many of them want to become chefs, but there's also a, a subgroup that want to become health coaches or personal chefs or work with individuals uh, in different ways. There are chefs that want to become educators that want to work in community health centers um, that want to uh, work in teaching kitchens in in different, you know, different kind of health sector um, or different places. Um, so there's quite a variety of, you know, what the students want to do with this degree, uh, but, you know, they all have a, a same passion for um, nutrition and health and sort of how those things interact. It's certainly something badly needed. I mean, uh, sort of, you, you're sort of operating in between the extremes on the one side, you know, shifts without any education about the science and health um, making the unhealthiest food. And then on the other hand, you know, what I often call snake oil sellers or mm -hmm. even worse charlatans who come up with all kinds of recommendations that are not science evidence-based. And um, and a lot of people fall for that because it seems like, you know, I mean, the common question I get um, from, from, from patients or people that I talk to, whom, whom should we believe? You know, there's so many voices out there. I mean, what's which, which diet is best for me? And so something like that program that you're describing is something really badly needed. I, I think, you know, that you bridge yeah. the gap between these extremes. 
And I think that, you know, one of the things that we're told as consumers is we have the power to vote with our forks, right? So what we choose to put on the end of our fork and into our bodies, that is, that's a vote for a specific thing in our food system, right? And when I think a little bit more deeply about this, I think that, you know, well, who creates the food at the end of your fork? If you're at a restaurant or, you know, out in the world, it's a chef. So chefs are really creating the ballot that we vote that we vote on. Mm-hmm. So there's so much power that that chefs hold to transform entire food systems. And, you know, one of the things that we work with um, with our students on is what are you going to put on your what are on your menus? Our, our slogan is find your culinary voice. You know, what is what what are you going to choose to put on your menus and why? And um, what does that say about your values? as a as a chef um so it's yeah it's a very it's a very unique position to be in and um and a powerful one at that so i think there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that yeah you never really would think about this or would have thought about this in the past you know the power that chefs have because this ethical framework that they that they're using to navigate and to recommend things it ranges from you know our behavior towards towards animals, um, our concern for uh, human health uh, to the environment. I mean, this it's not just making you know a delicious um, plate, you know, in a in a in a, in a restaurant uh, in a fancy restaurant. It's all these other factors. And the good thing is, I mean, there are some individuals now that really practice that art. You know, which as you, I'm sure you know, I mean, there's there's restaurants and there's chefs that. That that practices this kind of uh, culinary art. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and I think to your point that you were, you were getting at a little bit earlier of how do we kind of navigate the confusing information that's that's out there, and how how can consumers figure mm-hmm. out really what's best for them? Um, I think that's a really complicated question. I think you know, many of us suffer from a kind of paralysis that comes from a perfectionist culture. Um, foods become something that we fear. You know, we're told that wild salmon is good to eat. So we run to the store and we spend our hard earned dollars on wild salmon. But then simultaneously, we may learn something like, oh, there are microplastics in fish and, and that mm-hmm. makes fish something to fear. So we don't know what to do anymore as consumers and we get paralyzed, you either get paralyzed or we kind of throw up our hands and give up altogether and, you know, buy the bag of whatever's convenient and, and expensive. So I think, you know, where it takes, it takes time and energy to learn about these things and not everybody has the time and energy. So I, I understand that part, but I would encourage folks if they, when they do have a moment to just <clears throat> check sources on studies, dig past the headline, find the original studies, who funded them? Um, are those parties neutral? Are they biased? I think the field of nutrition is dynamic and changing all the time. And so when we're thinking about you know, what to eat and what's best, um, one of my favorite food authors is Michael Pollan, like many, mm-hmm. like many, um, and he simplifies everything in his suggestion that we eat food, not too much and mostly plants. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I would really add to that. Let's find ways to make food our friend again. Um, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. 
And I hope that as chefs and, and consumers, we can create plates of possibility where, you know, good can be good enough and we don't have to get so uh, quagmired in, is this okay? Am I okay? What am I doing? And all of that and find, find our way back to, to a, a balance there. Yeah, sort of, um, you know, this this topic that you that, that you mentioned, this these food related fears, coming to another quote from from Michael Poland uh, that we're living in this national eating disorder, um, you know, problem. Um, I'm not sure if that really exists to the same degree in other countries. I mean, I've grown up in southern Germany, uh, where that just you know there was a there's a culture, not necessarily the healthiest food culture, but there are a lot of healthy things, natural products, uh, in addition to the unhealthy parts like the sausages and things. But <clears throat> there was a tradition, sometimes going back hundreds, um, or if you go to Italy, thousands of years, uh, Romans, um, or, or in southern France. And so these countries have it a lot easier. I mean, they they grow up from their childhood on in a in a um, in a culture that has um anchored you know certain foods and dietary habits uh, for, for, for for a long time in the u.s there's not such a thing you know there's maybe steak and potatoes I mean, uh, or turkey uh, <clears throat> and i i think this is the main problem in the u.s that you have a you don't have a basis an anchor that people can say okay we've we've eaten my ancestors have eaten this and um, and then often the immigrants forget what they used to eat. I mean, some keep it for a generation, but then they forget it. And then they're thrown into this this relentless, you know, fear of of eating, not eating this or eating this. And um, if, if you look at packages now, there's more labels on it, what's not contained in it than what's contained in it, you know, which is a good expression of that. Um, yeah. And and I don't see an end to this. I mean, you know, it, it's sort of, I use a simplistic way on the one side, you know, I look at the science constantly, but then I also look at the evidence for something as, you know, well-known as the Mediterranean, the traditional Mediterranean type diet, not, not necessarily the modern, the modern Italian diet, which is not that healthy, but, uh, um, and, so here you have something that I think that is tasty uh, that everybody could stick to, you know, but then there's these other voices that go up to, oh, you have to go on the keto diet and you can't eat this. And, you know, and so it's really in, in the U.S. It's a, it's a challenge for the consumer to really. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the Mediterranean diet is one of the diets that has the most evidence kind of supporting its health benefits. Um, I actually like to, say this isn't really a diet, it's more of a lifestyle. Um, and one that of course involves healthy food groups, but it promotes movement, it promotes purpose, community, uh, spirituality, interconnectedness. And, um, but I really think all sort of what you're saying, all cultural food needs to be celebrated. Um, there are many traditional foods that are wonderfully healthy for us. And um, they just haven't been researched to the same extent as the Mediterranean diet has. So I would even venture to hypothesize that if more traditional foods were studied, we would find similar results across cultures. Yeah, and I mean along the same lines. I'm I'm on, on the same wavelength. I mean, often I wonder, 
if these other factors that you mentioned, the spiritual and the community, particularly the, the physical exercise, um, I mean, every time we go to Italy, we do experience these, you know, like you, you check, check your iPhone and you walked eight miles during the day and um, you go out for dinner and you know, the, the places, the, the streets and the piazzas are packed with people and walking around and socializing. It's all these things that really don't exist here anymore, you know, and uh, so I often wonder if these factors are at least as important as actually the composition of the diet, quite honestly, you know, it sounds, it sounds crazy for somebody who has spent so much time thinking about this, but if I didn't have the personal experiences and um, we did a recent trip to Parma, I, I was invited and, you know, it, it's not a very healthy uh, diet in Parma, even though they're a UNESCO heritage site for mm -hmm. the diet. Um, you know, there's 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 lots of ham, there's lots of cheese, Parmesan cheese, mm -hmm. and um, but then I looked at the life expectancy of people in in this uh, in this region of Italy, the uh, Emilia Romana region, and it's not different from Sicily. You know, yeah, in Sicily they would eat a very different diet, a lot of fish, and you know, not not the same kind of. So, yeah, I think we're so obsessed now with just looking at you know the macronutrients in in the diet and uh, you know that that we've sort of forgotten all these other factors that are really an essential part and you 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 mentioned this beautifully i mean it's, it's great to hear this from 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 somebody who's really in the in the trenches you know yeah. teaching this i mean i don't think i don't think what you're saying is crazy at all i mean i think you know there's some there's data to suggest the impacts that stress has on on our appetites on our systems on how we digest food and process nutrients um you know there's that that proverb uh i think a, a crust eaten in peace is better than, uh, than a banquet partaken in anxiety so this idea that um when we are in a state of rest and digest and our parasympathetic nervous system is activated and we're we're better able to process and digest nutrients and, and absorb um, material from our food. So there's hard science behind that. And uh, and there's it's really super important. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's stay a little bit with this topic. So a large number of people are as, as you know, on this constant quest to lose weight. I mean, that's another obsession I think that people have. And um, and they evaluate their diets primarily based on the effectiveness for weight loss. I mean, the, the ketogenic diet is a good example for that. People know it's not not the healthiest, but it's the, the fastest way to lose weight. And um, so do you promote any specific weight loss diet or... Um, or any uh, you know elimination diet, or do you teach the lifestyle with you know the the kind mm -hmm. of Mediterranean or or vegan diet that um, that would have this as an automatic by byproduct or side effect that you lose weight? Mm -hmm. Yes, so um, I had the great pleasure of attending the Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives conference um, this past week and uh, heard Walter Willett speak, who's a professor of epidemiology and nutrition at the Harvard TH um, Chan School of Public Health. Mm -hmm. And he suggests that um, obesity and diabetes are symptoms. 
their symptoms of a societal structure, uh, structure and food system. Um, so along those lines, I think it's, it's really difficult to promote a single weight loss diet um, because we're all human, and, but we're, we're also very different. So, and our reasons for gaining weight are different. One person may have a thyroid issue. One person um, you know, may have uh, emotional distress. Um, it really depends on the person. So when I work with my patients, losing weight is really a side effect and improving health is the goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Walt uh, Willett's obviously an amazing guy in his publications, you know, I've sort of been, been a big fan and once interviewed him, you know, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really, um, um, yeah. I share your enthusiasm. Inspirational leader, yeah, yeah. Um, so another question. So you you work closely with one of the most well-known experts in nutritional psychiatry, Dr. Drew Ramsey. That's how we got to know each other through him. It's kind of a rhetorical question. How how effective do you think that nutritional interventions are for for common psychiatric diseases, or do you really see it as an adjuvant um, component of dealing with a whole person that has a psychiatric disease? Yeah. So. <laughs> It's, it's a really interesting space to watch. I think, um, you know, one of the things about that's unique about our clinics is, is we have a therapist that, um, that our patients can work with alongside Dr. Ramsey, who's a psychiatrist. And then also if they want to bring in a food component, they can work with me. So when it comes to mental health, there's little evidence really that suggests that there are specific diets that are gonna, that are gonna work for psychiatric disorders. There are some really great studies about vitamin D and depression among others. Um, um, Dr. Ramsey would be a, a, a wonderful expert to ask more about those unique studies. So there are there is some material there, um, but in our clinic we really focus on food categories. So leafy greens, uh, what he calls the rainbows, which is like all of the fruits and vegetables and colorful foods, um, seafood, and then we kind of lump together like nuts, seeds, and legumes and probiotic rich foods. So we've sort of noticed that patients that include these food groups um, while minimizing hyper-processed and hyper-palatable foods, they may have improved health outcomes and the efficacy of their medications may be improved as well. So there's some, you know, more, it's not heavily researched, I, I think, um, and but there's some interesting research that's starting to happen. Um, there are more papers coming out about, uh, specifically about bipolar and keto, um, but it's still quite a new space. I mean, the space of nutritional psychiatry is, um, is quite new. So more to come, hopefully, um, on that. Yeah, and I'm sure that that will, I mean, psychiatry is sort of on the verge of a revolution, both in terms of diet and in terms of psychedelics. So, you know, in 10 years from now, psychiatry may be something totally different in terms of therapeutic options that the physicians, that psychiatrists can use. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, yeah. I fully agree. And it's also interesting how, you know, how we learned, uh, we haven't really talked about the microbiome, something that I'm particularly interested in, mm -hmm. how, how the microbes have this ability to uh, participate in the metabolism of many of the psychiatric drugs, uh, you know, that's an, it's another interesting thing that depending on how you eat and what diet you have, you may actually have different plasma levels of, of certain medications, psychiatric medications. And so it's, 
Yeah, this is a new field, and I, I think it's 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 exciting. A little bit too early, I would say, to make specific recommendations, but certainly the potential is 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 great. Yeah, yeah, I agree. A sort of related question along the same lines. I mean, how important do you think the the standard American diet, always like that acronym SAT, um, has in the prevalence of anxiety and depressions? We've seen a twenty five percent increase of anxiety during the pandemic in the last couple of years, um, even though the diet probably hasn't changed that dramatically during those last two years. It may for some people, but um, so how how important do you, a factor do you think that is? In, in, um... Yeah, I mean, gosh, that's a really, it's a big question. I think that there are indicators that the, the SAD diet may be linked to the prevalence of anxiety and depression. I think, you know, one of the most interesting spaces to watch here is the impact of food and the microbiome, like you were just talking about. And this is really where our, our two worlds meet yeah. is in the gut. And, uh, and it's, it's, you know, we harbor, as you know, we harbor trillions of microbes. And um, I learned from uh, another doctor, Dr. Sean Spencer, who's a, a gastroenterologist, you may know him over in Stanford, that when we eat things that include fiber, they're munched on by these microbes and they make um, microbial metabolites that pass into our circulation. And th these are actually relevant to our physiology. So you probably know way more about this than I do, but um, that the sad diet, because it's pretty devoid of, of fiber, it starves our microbes and we miss out on these metabolites. So in, uh, and what he studied and looked at is in this fiber deficient state, the mucus layer of the gut thins. And then when we don't feed that, mm -hmm. it feeds on us. Mm -hmm. So you probably know this better than anyone, but that creates, um, essentially it creates inflammation in the absence of fiber. So there's a dramatic impact of the microbiome on our physiology, um, just from, you know, we know it already from influencing our immune system, our metabolism, our central nervous system. Um, so I think, you know, there, there are really strong links here. It's going to be a fascinating space to watch. Um, it already is. And uh, the good news is that, you know, it, it's malleable and diet really um, gives us this important lever where we can regain some control over these, over these systems. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's always nice, you know, if, if you fully agree with somebody on so many, so many <laughs> uh, so, so not, I wouldn't be in that situation talking to some of my colleagues, you know, who either completely unaware of that whole discussion uh, or just send their patient to a dietitian because they don't want to deal with it themselves. So they have no interest or patience to do that. Um, so it's, you know, it's wonderful to, to talk to somebody like you is, who's so well-educated and so open-minded to, you know, to, to a different way of looking at, at, at health, starting with diet. Well, I would throw that right back at you. I'm, I'm, I'm on your podcast. I mean, this is the fact that you have an interest in this and you see the connection where many physicians are, are missing that link uh, or even not as curious or don't really want to know because they've just learned things a certain way and they have 15 minutes with a patient and that's it and they have had little to no nutritional training and um you know that you are you know ex exploring all of this is uh just so awesome and inspiring and and i'm sure super helpful to many 
I think uh, unfortunately we've come to the end of our of our time. Um, I, I really enjoyed this, Emily, and I really appreciate you took the time in your office uh, to talk to me. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, there will be many more interactions in the future, also on a you know practical level. But I mean, you know, maybe one last question I want to ask you. Like in your endeavor and and your efforts and what you see, what the situation is currently. What, what do you think we're going to be in 10 years from now in terms of, you know, diet and the impact of that on the health of, of the population, you know, which has not gotten better over the last uh, decades, if anything, you know, it continues to get worse. Um, we're able, the medical system um, is able to contain the worst complications, including death, but the diseases continue to grow in, in, in prevalence and the dietary habits maybe other than on the coastal areas in the U.S. have not really changed that that dramatically. So what do you think in 10 years we're, we're going to be? Um, oh my goodness, that's a really difficult question. I mean, in California, where we are, we're probably going to be underwater, but who knows? <laughs> so I think um, I think that we we do have a major crisis in our population and cooking food takes time. Food takes love. It takes skill. It takes money. Um, and hyper palatable convenient foods are all around us and for cheap. So, and then you add chronic disease management. That is so complex. Um, I'm not really sure what the solution is or what's needed, but I, you know, I hope that we can all start by making food our friend again, finding small ways to make these one degree turns, even if it's just by, you know, adding a little more leafy green to something where you didn't have it before. Um, I guess none of this happened overnight, right? And it's going to take time and patience and persistence and awareness and care to kind of work our way back to any form of balance. Uh, so that's my that's my hope for for all of us. Yeah, let's hope so. So, well, thanks again, Emily. Um, looking forward to talk to you again. Thank you so much. It's an absolute delight to be here.